Welcome to the Beast of Crypto's podcast. Today is Wednesday, October 18th, and we have a guest, Matt, Jack, how you doing? I'm good, man. I'm hyped. This is our second ever guest, uh, and I could not be more excited. Uh, we were looking through our address book, and we thought, no one wants to hear what we have to say anymore. Let's see if people want to hear what Jack has to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's let's actually introduce our guest, uh, Jack Melnick. I don't even know what your title is, but from Polygon Labs. Jack, how you doing? Doing well, guys. Honored to be on. Matt didn't have to scroll too far down on his Rolodex to find me. <laughs> I think uh, probably like top of his Telegram feed. So um, great to be on here. Love talking with both of you guys. Have known have known you for a long time. Um, my title I think changes depending on what month it is, but these days it's something like DeFi lead or head of DeFi at Polygon Labs. Um, and so in short, anything that touches DeFi, whether it's kind of pure DeFi product, whether it's working with Matt on the institutional side to help grow institutional adoption of DeFi, or whether it's plugging into other product and infrastructure, we kind of do a little bit of everything. And so uh, it's definitely a seat where you get to get to work with almost everyone. And I think the the kind of, at the end of the day, the biggest plus point for me is just getting to be in the weeds with teams, right? That was always my favorite part of working in research. And uh, it definitely stands true in BD as well. That's hype, yeah. Uh, my, my title changes depending on the conference I'm speaking at. I was told that VP of institutional capital is like a little too boomer. Um, and so I, I, I've also gotten sign off to present myself as a researcher. Um, so, I mean, actually, yeah, maybe this is like a cool place to start. So before Polygon, you were uh, doing, you were head of research at the Thai, right? Um, what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah, so um, I guess I'll even do a little bit of backstory before that, just to help level set. But um, started my career in traditional finance, much like Matt did, um, working in capital markets. And 2019 started to get introduced to DeFi actually through a guy I swam with in high school um, who used to just post about it on Twitter all the time. And I was like, what is this guy talking about? And I eventually started getting more and more into it, started publishing research that I was writing, you know, through my frame as someone who worked in finance was like really focused on trying to model protocol cash flows and all these other things that people in DeFi generally consider to be meaningless, but I really enjoyed doing. Um, and I wasn't even doing it through like a Substack or a WordPress or anything like that. Like I had no clue what any of those things were. I was like, I'm going to publish, I'm just going to throw this in a Google doc and send it out into the ether. And for some reason, people enjoyed that. Uh, and in 2021, uh, it led to me joining a company called The Tie. Um, I'd been doing like a year and a half of TradFi and COVID, hated it, um, and was ready to jump full time into crypto. And so uh, I joined what was at the time like a 10 person startup as our first uh, proper research hire. Um, and the tie is a data uh, and software platform for institutions in the space. And so my goal was to build what I called like the first sell side research platform in crypto, something that even I think today um, doesn't really exist in any meaningful capacity, aside from maybe someone like Blockworks. Um, but the, Can you the real goal. That? Can yeah, you exactly. That? Yeah. Like what is sell side research? Like why yep. does it matter? 
So think about it like this, and I think this will be something that's intimately familiar for the majority of your listeners. How often have you read a research report only to realize that the research was written by someone that's talking their book and just wants you to buy their bags after they've already accumulated a position or alternatively got paid to write that research, which obviously biases the underlying content, right? Um, in my eyes, like coming from the traditional financial space, that was something that you see a lot of there, but is also clearly like a massive conflict of interest in some capacity, especially in industry as new as crypto and especially in industry where, you know, it's not even like private markets and traditional finance where people are extremely limited in terms of their opportunities to gain access to the underlying equity, right? Like you can buy your new shitcoin governance Ponzi token from the day it launches and probably three months before they have a product. And so understanding where it's headed, I think is even more important. And so my goal was to do some sort of um, fundamental analytics on all of these companies that were major narratives, that were themes that I thought were meaningful and upcoming and use them as a baseline to educate traditional and crypto native institutions on what was actually happening in DeFi. Uh, and it was a ton of fun. Like the tie grew from 10 to 70 people. I built out a, a research team of five people under me um, that were all working on different content. Um, and I was grinding, right? Like at one point I was doing one to two research pieces a week solo. Uh, and so anyone that's written research knows what a massive undertaking that is. Um, but it was a great time, built out a, a fantastic Rolodex on the institutional side of the space and got to meet a lot of DeFi protocols, not as someone looking to extract value from them as an investor or extract value from them trying to sell them on uh, paying us to do research, but rather as simply as someone who is interested and passionate about the space. And I think that really set everything up for me moving forward in a, in a really, really solid way. Yeah. From the like, yeah, uh, for sure. So let's... from the early research reports, the ones that like predate your like joining the space, are is there like one that sticks out that you're like, man, that was so much fun to write? A hundred percent. It's actually the one that got me my job at the tie, and it was the one that kind of blew me up on crypto Twitter too. Was um, Olympus DAO <laughs> research report where it was super early days of that platform. No one understood how it worked. No one understood how like three, three models worked or bonding worked. Um, and there were so many copycats spinning up that it was almost impossible, impossible to functionally digest what each of them was in their value proposition. And so I did this massive piece breaking down how Olympus Dow functioned, what the goals were, um, what the product looked like and what their theoretical roadmap was. Uh, and then the second piece that I think really expanded it from there was I then did a piece comparing Olympus and, and a few of the major ohm forks side by side from the frame of reference of, okay, if you're actually trying to run this protocol owned liquidity uh, versus emissions model, your profitability as a protocol is functionally bound by your net emissions through bonding yield relative to the amount of revenue that the protocol is generating through either core business operations. So think, I guess, like for Olympus, it would have been something like Olympus Pro. For Wonderland, it would have been something like Sifu farming the treasury. Um, and on top of that, like revenue generated by protocol and liquidity LP. And so I, I basically broke all that down and was like, all right, one or, uh, redacted cartel is the healthiest from a revenue versus dilution perspective, then Olympus Dow, then Wonderland. And that was kind of exactly the order we saw declines into. So it was pretty entertaining to, to watch from afar and less entertaining to watch as someone that had bags in all of these projects as a mm -hmm. capacity. <laughs> do, you, do you think like, um, would, would you say Olympus wound up being successful? Um, 
So weirdly, I would say in some capacities, yes. In some capacities, no. The, the no side is no, they weren't successful in executing on their vision of becoming a DeFi reserve currency. And in fact, like I'd argue that their product roadmap at this point has majorly strayed from that initial intent, right? Um, yes, they were successful from the perspective that they created the single best bootstrapping mechanism I've ever seen, right? And you can call it whatever you want. You can call it a Ponzi. You can call it this and that. At the end of the day, I think the people that know Olympus really well um, in and out, whether it was kind of core people contributing to the protocol or investors or researchers from afar, would universally agree on, on one thing at this point, which is that the bootstrapping mechanism wasn't fundamentally flawed. What was fundamentally flawed was the way that they utilized the, the actual assets that they took on board relative to the emissions that they give out, right? Like, so it was so fo focused on growth that they lost sight of the actual roadmap. And then two, the big failure was the failure to deliver a real product. And so with that, like that kind of was what caused the major cascade is they, they didn't really have any way of generating revenue for the protocol, but they had these consistent massive sources of costs. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, in a way, like for it to actually work, like you would need a working product that generated revenues to offset those costs. Right. And so, um, yep. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting environment for other protocols to kind of fork that base mechanism and convert it for a, a model that makes more sense, right? Like perhaps it doesn't make sense for something that's effectively trying to capitalize on DEXs because the ability to generate revenue off of UniV2 style LP is actually really, really minimal. But perhaps like let's say I'm spinning up a lending market what's the biggest obstacle for most lending markets to grow? It's the supply of stables into the protocol. And so I could totally see a reality where a lending market spins up and bonds governance tokens in exchange for stables that they use as POL um, on the supply side for leverage, because that helps you defeat that entire chicken, the egg process of like, how do you facilitate bootstrapping leverage on your protocol um, in a really interesting way that directly passes through to what you're actually trying to do as a business. Interesting. Mm. So you're saying ohm fork, but lending protocol. <laughs> yeah, I, I never thought I'd hop on a podcast in end of 2023 and relive my own mania days. But it's uh, I, I could totally see that. And in fact, like, I think we're starting to see more appetite again, even from the projects I've been talking to around utilizing that basic bonding mechanism, perhaps in a more thoughtful way. Like it's something that I don't think is fundamentally broken. Hmm. Hmm. That's hype. Uh, that's a hot take. I like that. Yeah, I think the the one point eight billion APR may have been broken, right? <laughs> um, but just talking about bonding as a generic concept. Yeah. Do you think? Do you think like eighty percent is better than one point three billion? Um, I think like yeah, it, it sounds much more reasonable, right? Like obviously, I think there's a big few factors. The first is like the understanding of how much you're diluting existing token holders and like requiring them to you know lock up assets simply for the sake of locking up assets rather than for a productive reason for the core protocol. And the second is actually understanding how much working capital you need, right? Like there's a reason that you don't sell the maximum amount of your business when you're raising your pre-seed around to raise as much capital as possible, it's because like you theoretically are trying to work towards a system that actually effectively values your company at its mature state. 
right? And so the question is like, what is the most I can do with the least amount of capital? And in that scenario, the, the spread that you have to charge on the bonding model is actually minimized as well, right? Because you don't have to encourage as many mercenary actors to get involved and you can focus on the people that actually have alignment with your core goals. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Okay, Matt, I know you love Ohm and Ohm Forks. Do you want to stay on this or, or move <laughs> well, on? Let's, let's, talk, <laughs> let's talk about other stuff. Um... Okay, yeah. So I want to stay on this, like, this research topic. Um, you know, may, maybe stay on your role at the tie or, or not. But just kind of generally speaking, like, I, I guess starting at the tie, like, how did you kind of, like, what was your just very high level kind of your approach to putting out research for institutional clients? Like, how did you kind of decide, you know, where to spend your time, what to focus on? You said you built out a team eventually. But like, how did you kind of go about that process? Like, you know, did you kind of go, you know, sector by sector? Like, what, what was your and like, how did you I, I think, like, to frame this, I think what's interesting is like, how did you decide what was important as mm. an institutional investor? you know, coming into the space or, you know, already deep in the space, like, how did you decide, like, what was the most important things to, like, actually uh, uh, surface or, or talk about? Yeah, so I'll try and do each one of those individually. I think the last question is the most interesting, and I perhaps don't have a great answer for you because I'm working in DeFi PD now, and so I clearly didn't necessarily have the, the best alignment between what I was interested in and was writing about and what institutions really needed to read all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, I think like at the, at the high level, right, um, I was a philosophy major, right? Like I was actually never a computer science major. My background was always in writing and argumentation. How do you say as much as possible with the least, uh, with as strong of an argument? And so from there, it became um, a matter of like adapting that mindset into the my traditional financial background, right? In that, um, sorry, do you want to also pause and wait for Matt to come back or should I just keep going? Nah, we can just keep going. I pinged it. All right, all right, all right. Uh, okay, all yeah, good. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, and then um, when I was at UBS, I was working in, uh, in an equity capacity in, in equity sales. And so what that meant is every day I would wake up at whatever it was, 5.45 a.m., roll into the office, listen to all of our analysts pitch us their research reports, read the research, write up a short synopsis of the key points and what I thought was differentiated, uh, and then go out and pitch it to funds on the buy side. And so I think like that was really key for me in that it took me one step further of like not just saying, um, not just like regurgitating what an analyst tells you, right? Like if you do that, you're going to actually lose a lot of credibility with your core client base. It was much yeah. more about understanding when, a, when an analyst makes a call, is this actually a differentiated call or not, right? Like is this in consensus with the rest of the street? If so, it's probably not something that anyone cares about. Um, is this analyst call based on any sort of meaningful differentiated data sets, right? If so, it's probably something that even if they don't care about the call, they want to see the underlying data. And an extension of that is then once you get a sense of all this underlying information, validating the content, getting a sense of how differentiated the viewpoint is relative to other research, how do you then package it up in a super effective way such that it's actually appealing to the end reader on the fun side, right? Like that's a big difference. Oftentimes an analyst is writing for a research team, not necessarily a trader or an investor. And so being able to like take that next step of what is the implications of this from an actual PL perspective for a portfolio manager at a multi-platform hedge fund is very, very different from saying, okay, let's look at this basic underlying data. 
And so working within that kind of prior landscape in traditional finance, you know, didn't prepare me at all to understand blockchain or tech or even crypto loosely, but it did prepare me really well to understand what do funds care about? How do they want to read it? And how do they want it to be packaged and what's actually differentiated? And so when I was at the tie, I think like I really made a name for myself in a few ways originally. First, it was um, almost all the research I was doing was very differentiated, getting on top of narrative themes and protocols very early on. Um, I was not shy about calling out things that I thought were bullshit and fugazi and like a waste of time um, because I couldn't see the value. And like that isn't to say I was always right. But it also means I was really on sides for a lot of very big moves like Luna, for example, which is something I had been kind of publicly pointing out mechanism failures in for a few months prior to its explosion. Um, and then from there, it was uh, it was kind of a question of what was interesting for me, right? Like I have, I think, the benefit of being extremely passionate about this space. And regardless of if I was doing this full time or not, I would still be spending six plus hours a day on it. Um, and scaling up to, I guess, like where I'm at now, right? Like even when I was working at UBS, I was going you know, six to six at work more or less, and then getting home and reading and writing about crypto until midnight every night and then repeating for like two years. And so, um, it, it's something that was honestly a labor of love most of the time. And at the end of the day, like weirdly enough, I wasn't writing for other people. I was writing for me. Uh, it was like, what do I care about? What do I think is cool? And how do I actually do due diligence and research on this? And I wasn't just like going to some person's Dune dashboard or like the protocol stats page and just regurgitating numbers that I was seeing, you know, for that Olympus dashboard, right? Or like that Olympus report that I mentioned earlier, I'm not a technical person, right? I don't even know how to code at all. And so I wasn't going in there and writing a Python script to pull data from an RPC and comb through it and get the different tables I needed and all these other things. Like, I went and pulled all of the different Olympus treasury addresses from their docs and pasted them into Zapper and went through each pool one by one, making note of exactly the amount of liquidity they had in each pool. And then I went to the Uniswap stats page and then I looked at the historical fee performance of each of those LP pairs to get a sense of the anticipated annualized rate of return on each of the pools and then aggregated it and then did like a, a like look forward to get a sense of the annualized run rate, right? Like it was incredibly manual labor that oftentimes took like two, three days just to do data collection on. And so, you know, all of that stuff is not fun, right? Like it's, it's really like in the trenches, shoveling pig shit type work. But at the end of the day, you emerge with the skeleton of, um, of kind of a research report that is really based on data that you collected first party based on your understanding of how a protocol operates and based on like what actually contributes to their bottom line. And so, you know, for an institution, the biggest edges that you can get are differentiated data and differentiated opinions, right? Um, you know, I, I always kind of say that if everyone has the same opinion on you there, as you, there's probably not a ton of money to be made uh, in that like everyone's already on side, right? Like you want to find the things that people are off sides on, but you have an edge on. And so that was always how I kind of thought about writing research. And then as we scaled out the team and as I scaled up my work, you know, there was definitely this um, divide sometimes between what I wanted to write about and what institutions would want to read. And that like sometimes I would hop on calls and be like, they just go, okay, how does staking work? Or like, what's the point of staking? And I'd be like, all right, like I can talk through this with you, but I'd really prefer to talk about something else. And so um, <laughs> over time, I think it was nice because I got to witness the evolution of institutional sophistication and DeFi in real time, right? Like 
there were literally massive funds that started off asking staking questions that by the time I left, they were like, all right, walk me through your Frax model. Like, how do you, how do you wrap your head around all the different parts of this business? And so seeing that was really cool. Um, and then, you know, on the team side across the board, um, our general focus was, was largely DeFi. Um, that said, like there was some bifurcation. We had a guy who was focused on like Bitcoin and infrastructure. And he wrote his thesis on the map behind like the Bitcoin blockchain and did all of this tech wizardry that I couldn't even begin to wrap my head around. Right. And so it was more just showing him what matters and what he should be writing about than trying to educate him on uh, how to think about it. Right. Like he could understand that better than I ever could. And then um, the rest of the team was largely focused on DeFi, generally speaking, as as more of a generalist. And my goal as a manager is always to find an opportunity for people to spend as much time doing things that they enjoy and minimizing the stuff that they hate. Right. And so that isn't to imagine like a perfect socialist society where everyone always gets to do exactly what they want. Like realistically, you're always going to have to spend some time doing stuff you don't love. But if you can allow people to lean into each of those areas of expertise, they're naturally going to want to be spending more time on being on the cutting edge, on understanding what is coming out because it's a labor of love. Right. And so um, that was really how we treated it. And I think like the big thing for me moving out of research over time was I really, uh, as Matt knows very well, I'm an extremely opinionated person. And so it, it kind of got to the point where I was just tired of delivering my thoughts into the abyss from afar and really wanted to do two things. One is spend 100% of my time on DeFi, which you know in an institutional setting is impossible because they are interested in things outside of DeFi. And candidly, like I care if it relates to DeFi, but otherwise I almost couldn't care less. Uh, and then second is I wanted to spend more time actually working directly with builders on how do you take this industry beyond building products and into building businesses. And that was always like a big focus for me. And it's something that we get to spend a lot of time doing at, at Polygon Labs. And it's something that, that I really do actually love doing. So yeah, actually like right on this point, you mentioned something earlier, <clears throat> which is around building businesses and like basically looking at DeFi protocols and looking at what, like looking through their data and looking at what actually matters to their bottom line. So with like the DeFi protocols out there, I know like within tech specifically, like a lot of these business, businesses are not treated as normal businesses with how people look at their cash flows and things like that. But like, especially within crypto, like that's not how people look at uh, crypto protocols, but is that how you're starting to look at these DeFi protocols, especially the ones that you think are going to be around for the long term? Um, like, are you starting to look at them as like just traditional businesses? Like, I, I mean, honestly, that's, it's like a weird question to even ask, right? It's like, are you looking at this business as a business? No, but it's but, a good uh... question. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is a good question though. Um, and I think the answer is yes and no, right? And there's a couple elements to this. The first is like, obviously for traditional financial analytics, like DCF based investing, all that stuff breaks in zero interest rate environments. And so even post ZERP, like there's a lot of difference in the way that people think about investing and trading today than they did 20 years ago, right? Um, and that's definitely even more so true in something as cutting edge as DeFi, where the multiples that you're willing to put on a business are insanely high um, relative to like a less emerging tech category. And if you're willing to, in a zero interest rate environment, put an infinite multiple on any business because cash is free, it gets really, really weird. 
Um, and so obviously crypto is much more about narratives and themes and um, positioning than, you know, legacy businesses. But at the same time, we're already seeing a few things, right? Like you go looked at the pinned tweet on my Twitter account for a year and a half now. It said tokenomics matter. If it's not obvious already, it will be soon, right? Like that's true. We're seeing it constantly coming out now with the uni fee switch or Lido or any of these other platforms where if your token doesn't accrue value and you have a good business, people are going to be pissed, right? Like that, what is the point of, of issuing that kind of asset if there's no actual value accrual? Um, and I understand all the reasons why not, right? Like I understand regulatory, I understand legal headwinds. I understand all these things. I'm talking about purely from like a business, theoretical, philosophical perspective. And the second thing is, you can have movements in price over a short to medium period that are based on narratives or themes or positioning, but over a long enough period of time, what matters is having a successful business, right? And that's one of the fundamental reasons why I remain skeptical of Solana. I'm not going to call myself a Solana bear because I do think they actually have a really good differentiated thesis and a lot of really smart people building on their platform and all these other things. But that is the primary reason I, I am skeptical, right? That's the primary reason I don't have a huge Solana bag, let's say. And yeah. so um, at the same time, you know, I think having this mindset in crypto is good in that even if it doesn't help you identify every single successful project, I will say with almost 100% certainty that for the assets I have seen that do a thoughtful job of accruing value to the token, that do so in differentiated um, assets, so think like ETH or USDC real rather than yielding in-kind via a governance token, and that are running a successful business with positive cash flows, all of those tokens go up, right? Mm -hmm. And so... If you're playing this game of investing, you know, I don't have this SBF mindset of every trade with over a 50% EV is a good trade that I should put on. It's like, how can I consistently bias my performance to the upside while minimizing my risk? That's a super good way, right? In that, like, I guess as an example, one of the earlier research reports I wrote at the tie was on GMX when it was like a $20 token. And I pointed out that like, even if you assumed a TradFi ICE CBOE type multiple in the business, and you assume 20% of their current growth rate continuing for the next 12 months, this was a 75 plus dollar token, right? And that wasn't because I was in the, in the business of like convincing people to buy GMX. And so I wanted to build a model to back up my claims. I was like, look, like if you do this basic DCF that isn't meant to say this is definitely going to $75, but simply to kind of like show the amount of ETH yield that accrues to the token from a, a fundamental mechanism design perspective, it's it's going to go up, right? Like if the ETH yield on the token is 25%, people are going to buy the token until the yield normalizes down closer to staking rate. And that was something we've mm -hmm. seen time and time again, as it was on its way up, as it would hit over 15% yield, people would buy, as it would hit under ETH staking yield, people would sell because there's a very clear opportunity cost built in there. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, you've been like uh, by far the loudest uh, GMX proponent that that I know. Um, do you think? Uh, do you think like this is an issue for ETH um, that it's like the cash flows and yields are denominated in the native asset? Um, I think ETH is the one asset that I would say is a little bit different because it has kind of achieved its own independent source of value that is separate out from other assets, right? Like, and so I almost think about ETH as um, 
the crypto native dollar in many ways, right? And I know that's like not, again, a super popular opinion for a lot of people, but I'm like, look, like the hurdle rate for dollars is the T-bill rate in some capacity, right? Like what is the yield that you can actually earn from, from the government for this asset? And then the hurdle rate for DeFi is ETH. And so I recognize that's perhaps a little bit recursive at the blockchain level, but the reason I am okay doing that is because ETH is the only blockchain layer one or layer two that is public and semi-decentralized or decentralized and is actually running a profitable business, right? And so because of that, you have a greater degree of confidence in as long as there isn't any major change in like crypto's secular use cases, the value proposition underlying it remains the same. Network security will remain constant. And there is a secular reason to continue looking at and, and investing in this as a business as well, not just as a decentralized ledger. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I guess 1559 really changed the game. Sure um, did. Uh, okay. One more like random tokenomics question. What do you think of Curve? We, we did our Curve deep dive and I've always been perplexed at the tokenomics there. Um, what do you think? I think, I think that Curve is one of those machinations that almost is like a standalone category in itself, simply because recreating the model today would be functionally impossible and achieving the same level of success. I think what they did really successfully had a lot to do outside of the basic tokenomics, right? It was the fact that one, they had this massive long-term affiliate in Convex that was willing to acquire and build a liquid wrapper around a massive portion of the supply and ignited the curve wars from a token level, which really aligned interests with the people that held the asset in some capacity and the underlying protocol itself. And then on top of that, they had kind of a, an interesting strategy on the actual underlying mechanism design to acquire um, alignment from people depositing liquidity and the core protocol in terms of how they're actually emitting rather than doing so in kind of just like a thoughtless, generalized way. Um, Curve is a hard one though, because if you look at it on paper, it's almost really scary because the, the base fees that are being generated by the protocol on the underlying liquidity are very, very small relative to generalized emissions, which are obviously gonna be coming down over time. Um, and oftentimes like you see this, I think really commonly with people like Frax, for example, the amount of liquidity that they have in curve pools is actually orders of magnitude larger than they functionally need to either stabilize the peg or to actually facilitate frax based swaps where mm -hmm. like if you look at the total volume traded on like a frax vp relative to the total amount of liquidity it's like this traded seventy five thousand dollars today and there is a billion and a half dollars of tvl in this pool like that may be a slight asset mismanagement but at the same time I think that part of the reason that even when incentives start to slow down for Curve, that there, it won't necessarily be as much of an issue is because they have achieved a lot of that alignment. And there are all of these liquid wrappers on top of them that can facilitate their own incentives or any of these other things. And who's to say that like in the event of a, of a CRV unwind, that someone else doesn't scoop up a big bag of the underlying, create a new liquid wrapper with emissions on top of it, and the whole game starts again. Hmm. Yeah, Convex was a weird one. Like, uh, yeah. it started from this just like, you need to lock your curve for the maximum in order to get the like best rate. And then, well, maybe I can make a liquid wrapper for that, right? Um, it was it was almost like an early form of liquid staking. Yeah, exactly right. 
Um, cool. How do you how do you find Alpha these days? Um, for like twelve hours of calls with teams. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things that I think, generally speaking, there's a kind of a few things that I I'm always on the lookout for and. Generally speaking, you know, when you see as many projects as you do in the kind of DeFi BDC, you quickly get a really good sense of um, a bullshit meter first and foremost, right? Like if I'm on the phone with you and you're only talking about incentives and TVL and all these other things, like you probably have your your um, priorities in the wrong order. Uh, and at the same time, there is also a lot of building tech for the sake of tech without really thinking about go to market. And that's almost like equally as big of a fallacy. And so what you're really looking for is someone that's kind of hit that sweet spot of here are three mechanisms and a primitive that loosely worked last cycle. Here is why those, um, those things failed in some capacity. And here is a few major things that caused them to fail. Um, or alternatively, here is a, an opportunity cost that they are experiencing as the rest of the ecosystem evolves. And I guess like as an example, right, like um, I won't even name too many protocol names on the, on the show because I don't want to seem like I'm pumping my bags. But like um, for a lending market, right, like lending markets at this point, like Aave and Compound are really well understood from a risk perspective. And because their code bases are immutable and because of all these other factors, they are really, really well trusted and they represent solid risk adjusted sources of crypto yield that are that are just solid to build on top of. But at the same time, because of that very nature, they aren't as flexible and able to make adjustments as the rest of the industry moves around them. And so because of that, as that happens, there becomes these new pockets of opportunity that people can slot into because they recognize that even the largest protocol that's seen the most product market fit to date and will certainly be around for a long time very successfully may have gaps that occurs in their business model as the industry evolves. And so by taking, by slotting themselves into that gap, right, like there's the immediate product market fit and then building on top of a thoughtful mechanism design with user alignment and, you know, tokenomics that they've drawn from three years of experimentation at this point, you can end up with a product that both fulfills a lot of that like user business alignment, value accrual and product market fit elements um, in a really interesting way. And so like, that's kind of my sweet spot is less like what is the the next protocol that is going to their fifth chain that we can get on Polygon and more like what are the new protocols and primitives that are getting built right now that actually have a chance to see some success that we can help support. And like where are you finding the most interesting projects and like protocols right now? Like is it kind of across the board or are you seeing specific kind of areas where you're seeing particular kind of like i don't know like like a bunch of teams that are innovating or mm -hmm. like yeah what's the landscape like right now um yeah how do you see it good question um i think in terms of like how do i actually find these protocols i'm in kind of a double fortunate position which is one i'm at polygon right and so like a lot of times people reach out to me and it's more a matter of validating and then second i think for like the real edge even something like being at polygon is insufficient in that the real way that you get an edge is I have been working with protocols and giving them thoughtful advice in terms of go to market mechanism and building for a few years now. And not to pat my own back, I largely do it for free, right? Like I, I have very few advisory gigs. I have very few angel investments. And that's not because I don't love DeFi. It's because I'm poor and I love DeFi. 
Um, <laughs> and so, um, hey, with that, DeFi is poor now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, and so, with that in mind, right? Like, if over time you kind of develop the reputation as someone that will, you know, um, I don't know, not like out of, out of goodwill, functionally work with you, it's it becomes a reputation as someone that you want to talk to and. Um, and if you do a good job kind of providing consistent feedback, like I always tell the team, the thing that mattered most for BD is being thoughtful, being consistent and time, right? Like there's no simple recipe to becoming an, an overnight resource for people. The only way you do that is by consistently caring more than other people, uh, and then doing it for a long time. And so, you know, through that lens, you get people that kind of self-select into being good builders, right? Versus like oftentimes the people that approach me via my polygon have a lot of adverse selection, right? They're looking for something. They're looking for something from me. Yeah. Right. And so when that's the case, oftentimes that's, that's adverse selection, not always, but generally speaking, because it means that they have failed to achieve something um, that probably was a core thing that they overlooked. And so Again, that isn't universally true. I'm not shitting on people that reach out to ecosystems. It's a huge part of my job and I love working with each and every one of you. And I love working with people that have the ability to iterate. And I will even say for people that reach out, there's kind of like three different categories. It's the first is someone comes to me and says, hey, this is our idea. This is how we're thinking about it. This is go to market. And I go, holy shit, that's genius. Let's definitely work together. This is great. Um, the second category is someone that comes to me and pitches an idea and there's some holes in what they're doing. And I point it out and they get really pissed off at me and are like, you don't get it. You'll never get it. I'm going. And the third category is the person that has the holes. And when I point them out, they go, that's a great suggestion. Let me iterate and come back and let's work on, on creating something better together. Again, you still get that same process of self-selection, even within those latter two categories, because it shows you the builders that are flexible, that want to work on creating something good and don't just want someone to pat them on the back and tell them that they're a perfect angel and here's some money, go do it at scale, right? Um, and so that's kind of the, the process of like, how do you actually find good products? It's you basically do a lot of work for a long time. And so people want to work with you. Uh, and then the second part is like, what areas do I think are really interesting right now? I would say generally speaking, um, lending, like I talked about earlier is interesting. I think the biggest thing we're seeing there are one, like new base primitives that are really flexible and interoperable. And the second are protocols that are solving limitations of markets like Aave and Compound. Um, a few of those limitations being, I think the obvious stuff is like, as tokenomics have gotten more advanced, as value accrues to the token more effectively, the cost of supplying it into a lending market goes up because all of a sudden you're forced to give up a lot of these uh, asset rights that you know are, are no longer functional once they get passed along to a smart contract. Yeah. Um, the second thing is things like interoperability or even um, caveats around wallet positions, right? And that like, if I wanna turn E-mode on Aave or I wanna borrow or supply an isolation mode asset, that disables the rest of the functionality of the entire platform. And so I have to spin up uh, a functionally unbounded number of wallets based on the different types of things that I want to do. Uh, and so having the ability to work within that, uh, work within like kind of a virtual environment rather than on a wallet environment is really important. Um, and then the third thing is the, this is something a lot of people have been working on, but I think remains to be perfected is like um, LP token borrowing, right? And so, or LP token supplying rather. Um, in that like 
the ability to process not just uni v2 style lp but like balancer pool tokens or uni v3 tokens or even like glp type assets gets really interesting not just because of the ability to you know achieve better capital efficiency through rehypothecation but also because of what it enables downstream like imagine if when you deposit your gdi from gains into a liquidity protocol it can see your underlying gains positions on the GDI that you deposit or like via an NFT that you deposit alongside it, such that if normally going long ETH on the platform via leverage was capped at 5x, they can see that you're short 100x ETH on gains and facilitate more leverage on the platform because they know that it's happening more or less delta neutral. So there isn't as much risk of like liquidation cascades or any of these other things. And so you can kind of get into like this really interesting environment where um, there's just a lot of mechanisms on that lending side that have yet to really be fully fleshed out that I'm really excited to see built. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, super interesting. I had no idea that uh, all of this existed or was or was being built. Uh, very cool. Yeah, I mean the you know the normie take on on DeFi right now is everything that was going to get built got built right that it's like Uniswap and Aave. Uh, you know, like Barland and AMM. Uh, and, you know, for a lot of our listeners, they're, they're probably sitting here wondering, like, you know, you're, I, I personally know you work extremely long hours and like never, like literally never miss a day. Um, you know, what, what kinds of other stuff to outside of blending markets do you see innovation happening in? Yeah, I, I think I see innovation almost literally happening everywhere now, which is such a relief because there was definitely a hot second there where nothing was happening. And so don't worry, normies, you're not that far off the bat. Um, there was definitely a, a little while there where I was wondering the same. Uh, but I think, you know, a, a, during every market cycle broadly, you run into this same experience, which is that you have this pre-bull period where a lot of core building gets done. You have this massive euphoria as product uptake happens and people re recognize the building that has been done. And then you have this down cycle where people are trying to wring the last drops of value out of what's already been built. And it's like, it, the question isn't how do I build a better Aave, it's how do I build an Aave fork with a new token to get as much TVL as possible and try and get one last buck before we head out. Um, and you know, once that final period of settling comes to a close, which is really what I think has been happening for the last eight months, you get this period where people are like, all right, well, that's over. Might as well think about actually doing stuff again. And that's where we are today, right? Is over the last two months, I've been so excited to get to talk to projects that are doing thoughtful building again. Um, and, you know, across the board, whether it's AMM environments, um, that are functionally constrained by a lot of things like toxic order flow and counterparty and adverse selection and all of this other kind of risk that you take in by running in an AMM that makes LPs, generally speaking, deeply unprofitable. Um, there's solutions that need to be built for everyone in Matt's space to get on board, right? Like, like uh, I don't know, I'm going to say a fund that I know isn't involved. So that way it's not a, a legal issue, but like Millennium isn't going to come on chain and be like, yeah, I'm super comfortable with all of this toxic flow and adverse selection. And um, normally I'm, I'm comfortable making one BIP on a trade for 100,000 trades a day. But here I'm going to go to Uniswap's front end and pay 15 BIPs and do all these other things, right? That, that just like make no sense. And so there's clearly an opportunity there to develop alternative methods of swapping assets 
um, for different types of users that facilitate this. And I don't necessarily think the answer is like, how do I get IL out of an AMM? But it's rather, how do I create a new primitive for a different type of user that solves their issues when they don't want to be just passive liquidity? Um, lending is really interesting. And then I think the third category, and I'm sorry, Matt, because you've heard me talk about this a million times, is um, what I'm going to call like fintech adjacent or tokenized uh, asset protocols that are not trying to source demand on chain. Like that is the big, big thing that I have consistently seen failing for the past few years. Like you go back to my Thai podcast or not podcast, like panels that I used to host. And it was something I pointed out even back then is I was like, look, like the, this idea of let's tokenize assets and people will come clearly doesn't work, right? Like the demand of people on chain is not there. They do not care. They're here for DeFi. They're here for Pepe, Shiba, Inu, Sonic, whatever, Obama. Um, and because of that, you get this massive mismatch between like this TradFi dude who goes, I'm going to tokenize private credit and then have a, a billion dollars of TVL in a month because that's how much my originator can scale to versus the reality of the situation on chain, which is that the supply side isn't hard. It's the demand side that's hard. And so instead, like one of the things I've been looking more toward and like weirdly enough, this is a use case that Tron has absolutely killed it on is like finding this fintech adjacent space where you are using backend blockchain infrastructure to facilitate settlement in a more um, open, transparent and peer to peer way than it was possible in a legacy financial solution. Right. Um, and a lot of that is fintech adjacent. And then within that fintech adjacent category, there's two major subcategories as, as I see them. The first is like savings types products, e.g. I am someone in a country that has a local fiat currency with extremely high rates of inflation. And so I have demand for dollars or euros or some other asset that's more stable that I can hold my savings in, right? Think of that as like TVL based. And then taking that even one step further, if your local currency inflation is 20 to 30%, your local savings rate is probably like 50%. And so the question is then how do I ever effectively get working capital loans against my actual money? Well, it's really, really hard to do. And if instead you can hold dollars and then deposit them in Aave and then borrow more dollars for 3.8%, that's a really, really appealing value proposition. And so that's kind of one side, which is the TVL based side. And then the other is like this Tron payments, cross-border settlement, FX market world, which is entirely based on volume. And so I think both of those areas are going to become massive, massive sources of onboarding users over the next year or two in the same way that, you know, you look at all these traditionally unbanked regions, how easy was it for them to transition to digital wallets and digital banking um, because they had never built out that legacy banking infrastructure, because they had never built out that legacy credit infrastructure, you know, it, it was significantly more simple. And so within that same group, you're going to start to see, I think, the same thing with blockchain-based payments and savings. That's uh, that's super interesting, right? Because, yeah, like, I always, I talk to a lot of builders that are building exactly what you pointed out, like private credit that I'm going to tokenize. And, the, you know, and they look at the total outstanding supply of stable coins um, and they're like, that's my TAM, right? Uh, and you know, like in general, the stablecoin holders don't want to participate in that kind of thing. Even like tokenized money market funds are like not that attractive for someone that's, you know, a lot of people harp on like, how come there's still stablecoins deposited in Aave, right? Um, I actually think this is an interesting question. Like when you can get four or 5% off chain or through like tokenized treasury bills, like why lend to Aave for, for 2%? Um, and 
I think, you know, from my perspective, it's that the user base is very different, right? Um, and like knowing that you have, like Aave is the JP Morgan of, of crypto, where you're like, I know that if I deposit my USDC there, I can earn a stable, some kind of rate and it's better than holding it just flat, right? Um, yeah. But I still, I always know that I'll be able to get that USDC out and swap it for a meme coin or an NFT or whatever ohm fork I want to get into next. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the strangest thing because it, it really is a form of risk aversion, right? Um, where like, you know, people will ask me at Polygon, how do you keep your treasury? And like the vast majority of it is just sitting in stables. Um, and the answer, you know, people ask me all the time, why not earn 15% on it by lending to small medium enterprises? It's like, we're pretty risk averse actually, as weird as that sounds. Um, until yeah. we're extremely risk seeking. Yeah, it's uh, we're a tech company, right? Like our goal isn't to maximize the ROI in our treasury. Our goal is to ensure that we have enough runway to continue to do our core goal of developing blockchains, right? Um, and so I think by extension, like your, your points are all super, super on the, on the nose in that realistically, on-chain money market funds bear a lot of risk that isn't priced in. You have counterparty risk, you have regulatory risk, you have smart contract risk. And so, you know, that 5% that they offer should probably be 8%, 9%, 10 I don't know, right? Like higher at the very least, but they don't have to do that because one, they can't do it. And then two, um, the current demand for leverage on chain is so low that the existing hurdle rate for them to clear is actually much lower, right? And so someone that has, weirdly enough, like I would actually say that um, money market funds on chain right now are almost like the degen version of holding stables or like supplying stables into Aave in that like you're taking on extra risk for yield, right? Like that is full stop what's happening. And in many ways, I totally agree with you, Matt. Like Aave is functionally like the risk-free rate for stables in crypto. And so with that in mind, like it's then a question of what is your risk tolerance and what do you think your counterparty risk is and what's the underlying hurdle rate as opposed to like, is this actually the best rate risk adjusted? Yeah. Um, and, and so it leads you to this weird position of like, you know, if you're going to tokenize some kind of like off-chain asset um, and you want to raise capital for that, like maybe the capital does need to come in the form of like, you know, staples that don't currently exist on chain. Like your target yeah. audience is actually not the people that are that are using crypto today. It should be people that can benefit from using crypto that are going to have some kind of more fintech like uh, access to it. Totally agreed. Um, interesting. Can we can we talk a little bit about ZKVM? Yeah, let's move on to Polygon. Um, all right, all right. Okay, cool. So uh, I guess, can you give us a little bit of background, but just generally, what are you working on these days? What do you do at Polygon? Um, what does your team do? The whole show. Yeah, I lead DeFi at Polygon. What does that mean? It means I get to do a little bit of everything. Uh, I would say, generally speaking, the majority of my day is calls with teams. Like oftentimes, Matt's seen some of my nightmare days. It's like I'm on the phone at 7.30, 8am, and I'm doing calls back to back until 6pm. Um, and that is just getting in front of as many teams as possible. Sometimes it is working with them on this stuff I talked about earlier, like mechanism, protocol, go to market, um, integrations with other teams in the Polygon ecosystem, 
to you know try and create like that better user experience through interoperability trying to create stickier tvl because you have multiple level levels levers to pull for project success uh, and some of it is also just getting in front of teams to share my vision for what we're trying to do right i think the the single biggest thing that fails on bd at the ecosystem level is that everyone treats it like sales the idea is like, how do I get you to launch on my protocol via a grant or marketing or whatever else? And then once that happens, like the relationship is functionally done unless you become massive. Versus for us, I think that a big part of what we're trying to do is be a little bit more thoughtful around who we're putting major human capital resources into, and then ensure that for the projects we do, like we're giving them a lot of thoughtful support on all of these other factors. And again, like it's, time consistency and effort right in that if we're doing a good job across all of these things if we have a differentiated view on what polygon d5 bd brings to the market and how we're trying to resource teams which i hope by this point we've done it then becomes a situation where if we do that for long enough we start winning mind share and you know as my boss at uvs always used to tell me mind share equals market share right and so that was always the end goal is like if you win the core d5 development mind share and they feel that you are a resource that is valuable to them, you're going to start to win DeFi market share back. Um, and so the vast majority of that is being consistent with teams, working with them on all of these things. And then also on top of that, like the big other thing is you want to set out a vision that they can see not only working in their benefit today, but scaling into the future. And more importantly, it's being able to understand not just what someone is building, but why they are building it so that you can tie your vision for what you want your DeFi ecosystem to look like to what they're trying to build and understand exactly where they fit in, not just for the sake of converting them, but also for the sake of understanding who the best partners are for them within the ecosystem to build alongside. Hmm. Yeah, I've personally seen you make interest between teams and other teams like a zillion times. Uh, <laughs> it's underrated how, how big of a part that is. Um, what is the, uh, okay, so you talked a lot of, a little bit about like um, your, your vision uh, and how kind of what you're working on is more trying to put the seeds in place for that vision to, to mm -hmm. come into existence. Uh, how do you envision DeFi on Polygon, on ZKVM, you know, uh, what, what do you think, you know, what's the roadmap been like to get to where we are now? What, what's top of mind? Um, what, are you what do you think success looks like in a year, two years? Yeah. So it was it was pretty interesting. I, I joined Polygon about two weeks before, maybe a week before ZK and EVM launched. And so I was basically kind of just like thrust into this and said, like, here, do stuff with this. And, you know, for better or for worse, on day one, it was lacking a lot of what I would consider makes it a modern blockchain, not from a tech stack perspective even, but rather from like an infrastructure and product perspective. And so genuinely, the first like seven months that I was at Polygon, it was building a lot of infrastructure and product in tandem with teams. It was getting Gnosis Safe live. It was getting the graph live. It was getting um, support for OpenSea seaport contracts. It was working with our product team and, and, and on devs to build a forced transactions UI to panic exit the L2 if the sequencer goes rogue. It was doing all of these things that are really small details, but in aggregate, again, via consistency, add up to people seeing that you're doing the right thing to actually make this a successful chain and not simply a value extractive one. And I think that was compounded by and perhaps aided by the fact that we didn't have an airdrop um, or any of these other things that were kind of coming out or speculated on. And so 
they kind of just let me sit in my dark little corner and, and build stuff without like too much headache and hassle while simultaneously supporting the teams that were willing to take a bet and come early to ZK EVM and make sure they felt resourced and they felt loved and they felt, you know, supported across the board for what we could do at that point in time. Um, and, you know, today I think we're getting really close to starting to see our Cambrian explosion on ZK EVM, which I'm tremendously excited for. Um, I think the we're kind of in the last steps here, which is, you know, getting Chainlink live, Chainlink comes live, it we get our Aave and Spark deployments that are functionally just waiting on their final Snapchat. All the risk has been done. Once Aave and Spark are live, we're talking about risk-free rates. I have 25 to 30 projects that are hard blocked by either Chainlink or Aave, because if you're a protocol that's looking to earn safe yield on your stables, you deposit them into Aave. And if you don't have the ability to do that, you have no way to run your business. And so it's functionally a massive limitation for a lot of these protocols. Literally the day that happens, it, it then is a, a massive unlock for DeFi on ZK EVM. I think like from there, TVL starts to boost and we have a number of super exciting initiatives that I sadly can't leak here, but we'll kind of be coming out shortly after that to really ensure that we're carrying momentum. And my goal is to make 2024 the year of uh, ZK EVM DeFi. Um, we have a ton of really unique primitives and protocols that are going to be launching exclusively on ZK EVM. And the mindset is very much so that you know, as fun uh, and excited as we are to have people like Ave Live, that is the user retention element, right? Like, candidly speaking, no one is coming to ZK EVM going like, damn, I can't wait to deposit my stables into Ave on ZK EVM. This is about to be massive, right? It's more of once I'm on ZK EVM, once I'm doing my shit coining, my speculating, my investing, and my product searching, I then rotate out into Ave, and Ave and all of these other platforms give you a reason not to leave the chain. What puts butts in the seats? It's that like really differentiated product that you go, I've never seen that before. I want to go try that out. Right. And so that's what we're over indexing to, I think. Like, whereas, you know, I think some other ecosystems you see is all about big name multi chain partnerships. It's all about giving money yeah. to one or two protocols at a massive scale that have achieved some level of product market fit or giving a lot of money to protocols that haven't achieved product market fit and hoping that they're going to figure it out. Um, versus I would rather take, you know, that same bundle of money. And if you're going to be a big multi-chain project launching on ZK EVM, awesome, right? Like I want to support you, but you need to show me what you are going to build on our network that is different than what you've built everywhere else. If, if it's not like a core protocol and primitive, right? Like if you want to come deploy, show me the integrations that you're going to do. If you need introductions, we're happy to make them, but I want to see where the product differentiation comes from, right? Like I'm not interested in doing a vanilla deployment of the same thing on another chain. It's so stale. Um, and so yeah. instead take that same bag and split it among 10 hungry teams. You hit one of them. You've already gotten a higher ROI than you would have gotten elsewhere. Yeah. So like kind of on that point of product differentiation, like what are the kinds of, of things that you are, I, I know you're, you can't really give names or anything like that, but like what kind of stuff are you either like hoping to see or what kind of like verticals are you seeing interesting projects in already? And kind of, you know, like you mentioned, there's no airdrop, like without a token, how do you go about incentivizing builders to come build on this chain? Cause you know, you're seeing a lot of, um, obviously you're seeing a lot of kind of, uh, you know, wallet, uh, farming before, but now you're also seeing kind of like, uh, almost like builder farming where people will just deploy it to various chains to try and uh, get airdrops. So um, like, yeah. So how, how do you, how do you do that kind of uh, incentivization 
and um yeah just like curious around like use cases and apps that you're interested in and like what you're seeing so far putting me in a hard place here where there's like nine things i can't talk about i have to navigate between, <laughs> but i'm gonna do my best um so I think it's a great question. I think at the high level, what you have to recognize in DeFi, whether or not I like it or not, is that a lot of people don't really care about seeing differentiated product. For better or for worse, for the majority of users of DeFi today, token is the product. And so it's about developing outcomes that are hopefully positive for the token because the underlying protocol is actually well-structured and thoughtful and gives them plenty of runway and user alignment. And then there's also this other side of it, which is that at the end of the day, if we're keeping it honest, the tech only matters kind of. Uh, and so what I mean by that is like a lot of what people want to do is speculate. And like if people want to speculate, it's not my job as a BD person to tell them that they're wrong. Right. It's my job to ensure that like if you want to speculate, here are a bunch of unique primitives that you can go speculate on. But at the same time, if you over index the speculation, which is, I think, what you're talking about, like builder and airdrop farming, what you end up with is a dearth of product. And then what happens is at the end of the day, all of that speculative money rotates back into all of these other networks that have product. And so what really matters is being able to strike that sweet spot of, hey, this is speculation. But then once you're done here, here are all these other cool things that you should check out that are a little bit longer tailed, but might be meaningful if you get onboarded. And because they're a meaningful product, if you get onboarded, you then spend more time, you get pilled into the product because you believe in the vision and it, that's what keeps you coming back. Right. And so it's really that blend of those two things. And I think like, this is something that base did a great job on, on launch with friend tech in that it was this product that was like this beautiful speculative new thing that brought a bunch of attention. And so now the question is, you know, regardless of what how what the longevity of that project is, you know, I don't have any opinion on SocialFi. It's way outside of my scope um, of knowledge. But with whatever the longevity of that project is, if they can do a good job of executing on the core product side on the chain, they're probably going to have a really good, really good chance of retaining a lot of the kind of activity in the ecosystem over the long term in some capacity. But at the same time, that's the really, really hard part. Right. And that's why for our team, I over index as we're building it to people that, if not have research backgrounds, are incredibly, incredibly knowledgeable about the space, because not only does that then add the most value for teams on the BD side, but on top of that, right, like there are far too many BD people I've seen in the space that wouldn't know a good idea if it slapped them across the face. And so you need to make sure that when you have that good idea, that you're willing to actually take a swing right and so what i mean by that is like if you sit too passively and go like ah maybe this isn't the one i gotta wait for the one i'll know when it's the one whatever you're gonna miss a lot of things that are pretty good right and at some point you're gonna have to put yourself out there take a risk and bet big on a protocol and if you do a good job of self-selecting the right people that can identify good protocols your odds of hitting that that gmx on arbitrum type platform go up orders of magnitude Hmm. Pretty cool. Um, do you, you have any more ZKVM questions, Kron? Or I would, I mean, at one point, at some point, I would love to close out with a hot take. Yeah. You're uh, muted. I think you're on mute. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, let's do it now. Cool. All right.
Okay. Uh, I think this will be a tradition as we go forward with, with more guest episodes. Um, yeah. Jack, do yeah, you have like a hot this. take for us? What, what the, the nine hot takes I gave me? you today? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Uh, maybe, like, uh, let's have, like, a hottest take of 2024. Um, My hottest take of 2024. Well, I wish I had had some time to prep for this so I could have given you something really spicy. I think my first hot take, and this is my purple Kool-Aid hot take, is that I think people are really underappreciating what we're doing on the building side right now at Polygon because it hasn't showed up in the top line numbers. But I think that at the same time, we've been very thoughtful around building behind the scenes because, candidly speaking, there isn't that much going on right now, right? I don't need to compete for this DeFi PVP market share. What I care about is winning the dev mind share. And I think we've been really successful in that. And so now it's about executing on the go-to-market side of it. And so I'm thinking that um, DeFi on Polygon in 2024 will surprise everyone, which I think is definitely a spicy take, but a biased one. Um, and then I think the second yeah, bias. We need take, a non-polygon one. All right. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. I think the the second the second take is that I think um, the biggest applica- or one of the biggest applications at the end of 2024 will be uh, a blockchain application that doesn't actually touch DeFi natives at all. Um, and so I'm very interested to see that. I think it really leans into the fintech adjacent category, but. I think the cadence of growth that I've seen in fintech adjacent payment and savings platforms has been massive. And given how stagnant DeFi has been and likely will be for kind of the next six, 12 months until people start getting excited about being our exit liquidity again, um, that growth is going to happen from users who don't know or care what DeFi is. And at the end of the day, a big part of, sorry, uh, a big part of my job is also like thinking through within that group and within Matt's group on the institutional side, how do I then connect them to DeFi in a thoughtful way? And that's something that I'm really excited to do as well. Can you name a few of these projects that you're talking about? Um, that people All right, only because you asked, so that way, uh, <laughs> since you asked, I'll pump my bags a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, none yeah, of this of is course. financial advice. I don't even hold stakes in all of these projects. Some of them I just think are really smart. I do hold stakes in some of these. So know that for the listeners of the Decent Crypto podcast. Um, I think on the fintech side, one that Matt and I have been really interested in is this protocol, Alcancia. They're doing a really good job towards some of those savings use cases that we've seen in Latin America, Mexico, the Dominican Republic. Um, and so, you know, they're still in the very early stages, but they're a team that I think is if not the product that is going to win all the market share at the end of the day, represent a very good example of what I'm talking about um, when I say like these sort of fintech adjacent products. And I think on the lending side, so, um, I'm, oh yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and so like, how does, like, what is the model there? Essentially, it's like a fintech product on the front end and it uses like um, mm-hmm. DeFi on the back end, like essentially they're using Aave or something else like like similar to yeah. generate the yield yeah. or? So it's yeah, a, so... Alcancia means a piggy bank in Spanish. Uh, so it's effectively, you know, taking fiat payments from Latin American uh, users uh, just through like a, a sort of fintech front end. Um, and then, you know, in the background, swapping them for stable coins uh, and depositing them to Aave or, you know, into like other, other protocols, right? I think a big caveat there too that's important is they have banking relationships on the back end as well, right? And so they're not taking fiat and then swapping to stable coins and holding FX risk. 
they're taking fiat, swapping to dollars via their banking partners, and then bringing dollars on chain in the form of stable coins. So they don't bear any FX risk and then depositing it to something like Aave. And then I think also exploring some of these money market type solutions as well. Right. Um, and so it's a super simple mechanism, but they're growing 70% month over month. Right. It's pretty wow. crazy numbers. That is yeah. wild. Yeah. Yeah, these guys are um, hot. Super cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is on Tron. No, this <laughs> is. Where is it, Matt? Is it on Arbitrum and then going Polygon? I forget. It's a uh, it's a mix, um, but yeah, uh, I think it's I think it's currently live on on POS. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure oh, if it's live nice. on Arbitrum. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Uh, and then I think the other protocol I want to give a shout out to because I think the team is fantastic. I don't even own any tokens because they don't have a token and I don't own any equity because I'm not rich enough um, is Dolomite. Um, they are the protocol I was talking about earlier when I was mentioning a lot of that stuff with Aave. They are just a really thoughtful platform. You can deposit a variety of different yield bearing tokens like UniV2 LP, like GLP, you can deposit more complicated assets like um, GMX as a base. You can deposit PLGLP and Pendle assets and fixed yield tokens and all these like really complicated assets that haven't found homes in kind of the trad Aave type lending markets. And then they do a bunch of really, really cool stuff on the back end with it, where if I deposit GMX into the platform, I can compound my GMX multiplier points. I can claim my ETH. I can do all of these things. I don't ever have to unwind my position and withdraw to do that. It all happens natively within mm. the front end. You can have an infinite number of different positions per wallet such that if I wanted to run E-mode or isolation or cross margin, I can do those all through different sets of borrow positions rather than different wallets. And then the third thing they do that is super unique, very much so in the early stages, but I'm excited to see it down the line with this kind of uh, with that kind of like gains example of being able to see the underlying position and then offer greater leverage on the other side is they can also take something like UniV2 LP or a more complicated LP position down the line and decompose it. And then what they then do is they allow users to actually margin trade on the platform using that decomposed LP as collateral. And so because it's like a UniV2 style LP, like there isn't really wow. any underlying risk but it represents purely an incremental source of yield in that like you then earn the base uni LP fees from the actual asset. You earn the supply fee for supplying the LP token and you earn any trading fees that are generated on your collateral. And so it simply becomes a more productive asset. And then over time, as you expand it, you can even build stuff like true limit orders as a result through the site because of this like aggregation of collateral. And so it just really expands use cases in a very cool way. Um, the team is OGs. They're super thoughtful. Uh, and so definitely shout out to Dolomite for building in a bear. That's hype. All right. That's really Amazing. Cool. Yeah, that was, a, that was some actual alpha for our listeners who, who made it to the end here. Yeah, um, if you listen to right, me talk for cool. an hour and five minutes, <laughs> you deserved it. <laughs> um, amazing. No, this is great. Matt, do you have anything else? No, thank you so much for coming on. This is awesome. Thanks for yeah, having me, guys. Thank I had a ton you, of fun. Jack. This is this is amazing. Um, we'll definitely have to have you back uh, back on as ZKEVM grows. Um, yeah, in yeah, eight months uh, we'll have something out. more exciting. <laughs> yeah, eight months down, yeah, yeah, to go. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. cool. All right, Jack Melman, right. thank you for coming on. 
We'll be back later on in the week with a recap of everything that happened. Till next time, stay decent.